Hello, my name is Kristen Gutu, and this is Technically Biased, the podcast that discusses bias in tech. Today's guest is Damini Satija, head of the Algorithmic Accountability Lab and deputy director at Amnesty Tech. She is a human rights and public policy professional with experience working on data and AI with a focus on government surveillance, algorithmic discrimination, welfare automation, and tech equity and justice. She has her Master of Public Administration from Columbia University with a specialization in tech policy and her BA in economics from University of California, Berkeley. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Dominique. Before we begin, can you please share a little more about yourself and how you ended up on this career trajectory? Yeah, and thank you so much for for having me here. So as you said, I work at Amnesty International in the tech team, and I've been working on data and AI issues for a number of years now with a specific focus on government use of those systems and their implications on people's rights. I started with a focus on the right to privacy, but over the years have focused more on Uh, more broadly on the sort of societal and human rights-based impacts of these technologies. So I've been working on those areas for a number of years, but the exact angle and focus has shifted and changed, and I've kind of tweaked how I wanted to be working in this space over time. I started in this space more in the tech and international development sphere. And that was what I had studied in my undergraduate degree. And I was very curious and thinking about sort of where, how does tech change policymaking, especially in the development space. And I was working at a company doing work in that space. And that was also at a time that governments in particular, but but more broadly as well, there was a lot of talk about evidence-based policymaking and data-driven policymaking. And there was a lot of hunger in governments and sort of multilateral organizations, IGOs, you know, organizations like the World Food Program, aid organizations to find ways to bring data into their organizations and then use that to make better decisions because it was the height of the moment, to be honest. And often they really didn't know what to even do with that data. It was just a, oh, we think we need to be using more data, help us. And during that time, there there were a couple of ways in which I I sort of really changed my mindset on on the the matter and basically became really concerned about the privacy and surveillance angle of how governments increasingly gathering a lot of data. And living in the Bay Area at that time and, you know, pre-Cambridge Analytica, I was also seeing that if I raised these concerns with people, they seemed pretty unbothered, almost like it was a nuisance. And that was quite horrifying for me as well, given the direction of travel that things were moving in. So all those things came together and and I decided to pivot myself more to the, the question of how do we regulate tech? How do we protect ourselves from these really basic infringements? And back then I didn't have a really strong vocabulary around the right to privacy, but instinctively there, I, had a, I had a very strong concern about this. Um, so from there on, I, I moved into that space. I went to grad school and, and studied tech policy and regulation. And like I said, over the years have kind of refined and changed that in many ways, working more in the policy sphere. But now I've landed in a human rights organization. And that really comes from wanting to, I I think I started to feel a lot of frustration with tech ethics or a lot of the ways governing and regulating tech was being talked about in sort of very soft, 
non-committal terms. And I think the human rights framework offers a very enforceable set of tools and mechanisms to think about how we regulate tech. So that's a sort of whistle-stop tour of, of how I got here. You make a really good point because the philosophy in the tech industry is often move fast and break things, but of course, at whose expense? So I think it's very important, the work you are doing. And you did touch a little on this, but this will be a twofold question. If you can, one, elaborate on what you learned about the human rights implications in data and its role in policy and regulation, and also bring that to your work as head of the Algorithmic Accountability Lab and what you do as the deputy director at Amnesty Tech. So to speak to what I do at Amnesty International exactly, uh, as you said, I head up a team called the Algorithmic Accountability Lab, which is a fairly new team within Amnesty Tech. So we're a seven-person multidisciplinary team. We have a range of skill sets and backgrounds represented in the team, whether that's a legal background, more academic and sort of sociology, anthropology, uh, advocacy, journalism, data science, a whole range of things. And our vision as a team is to investigate, research, and advocate on the increasing use of artificial intelligence and algorithmic technologies specifically in the public sector. And within that, in the delivery of essential public services. So we're talking about welfare, social security, healthcare, housing, education. And that really is a response to seeing governments really take up uh, automation and AI as a way to disperse those services and often in really troubling ways, which I'm sure we'll, we'll come to later on. So that's the, the work of the Algorithmic Accountability Lab. And I'd be happy to speak more to what the, the team does. So within that vision, we have two main streams of work. One is around advocacy and very focused on influencing regulation. And over the last year and a half, we've been fully focused really on the EU's Artificial Intelligence Act, which we see as the first global comprehensive framework on how to regulate AI, uh, not just us, many. And therefore, it we're very conscious that it will set precedent for AI regulation in the way that the EU institutions have elsewhere as well, for instance, on data protection. So it's been really important to us to, to influence um, that forum in collaboration with other civil society groups working on the AI Act. And so that's been our advocacy focus, but that very much also lays the groundwork for how we will work on AI regulation moving forwards. And anyone who's sort of been paying attention to this space this year will know that there's been an absolute explosion in attention to AI as a technology, but also how do we regulate and govern AI? So that's one piece of our work. And I think as we move beyond the EU, a goal of ours is also to ensure that Global North voices don't have the the dominance that they currently have in in tech regulation spaces, and that's a bigger question and a bigger challenge that we we can unpack too if if uh, if we get into it. And then the second stream of work that the team does is more around research and investigations, so looking into specific deployments of algorithmic systems by public sector agencies and using a combined human rights 
approach with more of a kind of technical audit approach to interrogate these systems as holistically as possible from their technical design to the policies that underlie them to the the impact on people and and really understanding the lived experience of those who are on the receiving end of the harms of these systems and then using the outputs and what we find in those investigations to help affected communities seek justice and remedy and influence and pressure governments to take action and provide you know the transparency that's required or or put in place the the safeguards that we see as essential to ensuring that human rights are protected to build a foundation for our discussion i often hear that technology is neutral and that it cannot be biased in its output so can you provide a response to that for our audience and share how bias and discrimination generally emerge in AI algorithms? Absolutely. And yeah, I think, uh, as you can imagine, that narrative of tech being neutral is is really damaging and really negligent of of how tech is developed, how tech is implemented, um, and in particular, whose voices are most represented in the process uh, of tech development and deployment, right from the conceptualization of new technologies. So not just AI here, but, but technology more broadly through to how it is deployed and what settings it is used in. Because throughout that process, there is an act of kind of defining the problem that you want to solve with the tech, right? I would say it's extremely fair and reasonable to say that the voices that define which problem which problems are worthy of, of uh, tackling with tech tend to be really powerful policymakers and very importantly industry and you know industry has the monopoly in which direction to take technological development so I think that's a first principle to establish when thinking about this tech is not neutral because it is so entwined in existing power structures, whether that power comes down to political power, financial power, who holds access to to the resources required to develop tech. So that's the first area in which I think we see existing structures in in society manifested in 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 tech as well and then i i think the second is is more to speak to the the implementation and deployment piece the way tech and and this is something we see really clearly with ai the way it's implemented is very much enmeshed in the social and political and policy environment that these technologies are implemented in. So let me provide some examples there, very specific to the public sector settings that that we look at in my team. So we we look at AI used in migration contexts, in the delivery of of benefits, as I said, in in the context of law enforcement use. And in all of these situations, we see that the way tech is deployed is ultimately to operationalize that wider policy environment. So if if we're if we are seeing immigration policy that's increasingly xenophobic, increasingly anti-immigrant, that will be reflected in the tech. You will have the AI systems that will be deployed will be deployed to sort of further that policy goal and overarching framework. In the context of welfare, there's a lot of literature out there and a lot of great work that shows that, you know, the, the social safety net has, has been designed, especially in the kind of global North liberal democracies to police the poor and, and take a very punitive approach to the poor. And that's very much what we see coming out of the way the tech is used as well. So it's also the fact that these, these technologies are used as a kind of feature of the social political histories that define how they're used. So I think that's another way 
And, and hopefully that points to both how the tech is not neutral, but also how it's it's so much bigger than just the technology itself. And it's, it's the environment and, and the power structures going into how tech is used and developed. And I say that because I think often there isn't, when it comes to the bias and discrimination debate, there's such a focus on the technical issues. So that, you know, the data training, the AI is biased. And I'm not denying that that is certainly an issue. But what I'm wary of is a focus on that leading us into a, what I sometimes call the technical fix trap, this idea that as, as long as we fix the technology, we fix the problem. But that's that's really not the, the case for, for the many reasons that I just outlined. You make a good point of if we want to properly mitigate the problem, we need to understand what needs to be mitigated. Is it the model that's at fault or is it the data that's at fault? And you provided some examples, but I was wondering if there were any other examples that you might want to illustrate that really depict how our biases are codified. So one of the examples that comes to my mind immediately is a compass algorithm in the prison system, which I'm sure you're familiar with. So what have you noticed in your work that also stands out? Yeah, I'd love to speak to uh, a couple of examples from our research at Amnesty, which I think very much mirror what you're thinking about in, in the Compass example, and also speak to this, this issue or this uh, very important lens of, yes, there are issues with the models and the data that trains them, but it is so much broader than that and so much more about the, the wider environment. So the first example is drawing from a report that Amnesty published in 2021 called Xenophobic Machines. And this was really led by our team in the Netherlands, along with the Amnesty tech team. And it looks at the use of an algorithmic system by the Dutch uh, tax authorities in detecting fraudulent applications for childcare benefits. And many, you or many of the listeners may have heard of this because it really did lead to a pretty far-reaching scandal in, in Dutch politics beyond purely just the uh, scandal about the tech, but politically as well. And what we found in that investigation was that there is there was an algorithmic system being used to flag applications for childcare benefit that could be fraudulent, and that that model was using a nationality and in particular dual nationality to flag individuals and families and in particular parents. And so that that disproportionately targeted communities of color, immigrant communities, low-income communities. And with really devastating consequences, and this this is where my point earlier of um, the, the lived experience of, of you know, people and communities who are at the receiving end of these, these systems, it's, again, that's why we really can't just focus on the tech. And the, the families in this case were facing evictions in some cases, they were asked to repay benefits and really pushed into financial distress. And I think that that example speaks to some of the things we've we've been discussing already now on uh, that there, there was clearly a flaw in the way that the algorithmic system was designed, but it was also part of a policy environment and a set of policy incentives to uh, weed out, so to speak, the, the fraudsters. Um, you know, and that's a really dangerous language we see often in, in 
the world of uh, social protection and welfare. So that's one example. Another that we filed litigation on last year with a group of other civil society organizations is the Serbian social card law. Um, and this is a law in, in Serbia that establishes a centralized database on all applicants for social security and and of a few different types of benefits. And and there are some sort of surveillance and privacy concerns there in creating a a database, uh, essentially, again, focused on those in in low-income brackets. But then that data has also been used to determine eligibility for for benefits and to flag those who perhaps aren't eligible for benefits. And I won't go into all the details of the flaws with the system, but again, looking at it and and those in, in Serbia, our local partner organizations who've also done a lot of great work to look at it have found that similar to to the case that I mentioned in the Netherlands, the system has really entrenched and exacerbated existing inequities in society. It has targeted Roma communities, people with disabilities, purely because of issues uh, like data quality or how the automation is working. And so again, this speaks to, it's about the design of the technology, which stands to entrench and scale existing discrimination. But it's also that, like I said, the, the the system itself is pushing forward an agenda or an environment that is is targeting those already marginalized communities. You make the very important note to stress lived experiences. So a lot of people think that technology is mutually exclusive and it doesn't require this human element because humans, again, are biased but technology is not. So we discuss models, we discuss the data, but more specifically, how can we go about ensuring more inclusivity, more representation, less bias? What steps can we take to ensure that we move in the proper direction? So let me take that in two parts. There's the way that technology is developed and and deployed. uh, And then there's also how we regulate and govern tech and potentially other avenues as well. But I'd like to, to tease those apart a bit more. So in terms of how tech is developed and deployed, I think this requires some pretty deep structural change, because as I said, so much of this is about who's funding the tech. And we know that it's often big or even medium-sized tech companies, it's the venture capitalists who are propping those companies up financially. And I think in the space, we often say, oh, we should bring impacted communities or those who will be most affected to the table more. And absolutely, I 100% agree with that. And I do think those voices are just not represented in the tech development process or the product development process. But I, I think there are also some limitations or problems with that stance that we're yet to tease out as a sort of tech and human rights or digital uh, rights tech tech policy community for many reasons, some including it's easy for that to become a tick box exercise of just sort of, you know, we engaged with XYZ communities in XYZ ways. And that's absolutely not what we want. I think also we have to be careful to not put the burden of speaking up or doing additional labor on the communities who are most impacted by, by tech. I think that stands to potentially be extractive or just 
frankly not very fair especially when you know a lot of the the harms of these technologies have been documented there are many civil society organizations academics think tanks out there who have done a lot of the research uh, of of where these technologies can go wrong and tech companies can rely on that they can put policymakers can rely on that too and they should draw on that and a lot of those folks who've done that research have have been really mindful of the impacted communities and bring their voices to to the their work. So I think also one of one of the limitations of this argument of bring impacted communities to the table is that it 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 can end up almost ignoring all the work that has been done. And that is also really crucial to bear in mind and those who have the power of, of developing tech need to need to consider that. And then I think the last thing I'll say on that point and I realize these are all quite big points, but like I say, I, I think the solution to this is a bit, it's deeper and structural than just here are a set of things that tech companies can do that will fix the problem. You know, I'd love to see a future where the way, the very way in which the development and conceptualization of tech is is resourced and done is is more community driven. And I, I think that that takes a, a real mindset shift to how to how tech is developed right now and on on the advocacy and regulation side i I think some of those arguments carry over one thing i would say is it's very easy in the in the tech regulation space to think um, or push forward a narrative that we need new regulation uh, we need new mechanisms to hold governments and companies to account and that we forget how much is already in place whether that's in the form of human rights law international human rights law which is what we we work with at amnesty and which really already defines a lot of the the thresholds and the lines of acceptability and non-acceptability, whether that's the right to privacy, the right to non-discrimination, the right to various economic and social um, services, like the right to housing. So many of those are already enshrined in in legal frameworks in the US in more of the, the civil rights framing, but it's still there. So I think firstly, remembering that. And I think there's a lot of work being done on how to, again, how to bring impacted communities to the table in conversations around how to, to regulate tech. And I say the same, I think that's important, but I need to, I think we need to think about the limitations of that, especially in creating extra burden um, on those communities. Um, I think, I think the one important piece there is to engage with activists, community organizers who are doing incredible work at, and, and seeing sort of how tech is implemented at the front line. So they are closest to that. You know, I, I don't think an organization like Amnesty, where we're a very big organization, we've been around for a long time, um, we're not working at the grassroots level. So for us also to do the best possible job in thinking about what are the policy calls we want to make on how to regulate tech? It's crucial that we also do that work of speaking to communities and those who represent those communities. And then the final thing I'll say is a lot of this is kind of preemptive or proactive, I guess. I think, however, the reality is a lot of tech harms are happening. Rights violations or, or rights impacting tech is already out there and being rolled out. And where individuals or communities face harm, we also need really strong mechanisms for them to seek justice, to be compensated for, for the harms they've suffered. And that's also something that should be enshrined in, in law and that policymakers should be taking responsibility for. You make a lot of good points. And so my next question will touch on a lot of what you've already mentioned. But I do want to specify that when we spoke earlier, 
you made a statement about the development of technology often originating in the global north and being transported to the rest of the world. And that might not seem concerning, but it certainly is because of the lived experiences. And so if you want to elaborate on that a little as well, I think that could be helpful. Sure, and I, I think it also speaks to the earlier point on power structures and how global power structures are further entrenched by whether it's the sale of technology, development of technology. So I think we've definitely seen what you mentioned, sort of there is a dominance of the tech industry in the global north, uh, and they are often developing tech that is exported and used elsewhere, sometimes in quite experimental ways. That's not to say, you know, Tech is only being developed in the global north, but that is one dynamic we observe. And there, there are some cases at Amnesty where we've documented this as well. So we put out a report earlier this year called Automated Apartheid, looking at the use of surveillance technology in the occupied Palestinian territories to entrench the apartheid regime. And the some of the technologies investigated in that report were traced back to companies in the Netherlands. There is another amnesty report that looks at repression in China and the use of digital surveillance tools, again, traced back to developers in Europe. And these, these technologies are then were then being used um, you know, to target uh, Uyghur and other Muslim minority communities. So we we have evidence of of this flow, I guess, that we're we're describing. And first step is is knowing that. And we could dive deeper into the geopolitics, et cetera, et cetera. But I think what I really want to emphasize there and, and what is a priority for us from a policy perspective is ensuring that as we see regulatory mechanisms like the AI Act coming to the fore and, and reaching their final stages, that there are protections in those frameworks for those kinds of exports and sales of technologies where the tech is developed in one place, but it can perpetrate a human rights harm in another place. And as I say, the, the AI Act is very much in its final stages right now. And this is one of our priority policy calls at this point, that EU policymakers really pay attention to the responsibility they have with this this regulatory framework to impose the right restrictions and safeguards that that mean EU companies and and therefore by extension the the countries the member states that they are in are not part of of perpetrating those human rights harms outside of their borders and i guess just to add to that at this point in time what we see is that the AI Act, there is a real discrepancy in the human rights protections offered to those who are within the EU and those who are outside, because the protections that the AI Act, or, or rather the safeguards that the AI Act is imposing within the EU's market, both in terms of technologies that it, it wishes to prohibit or ban, and also in terms of the additional requirements it places on developers of what they class as high-risk systems don't carry over to the export of technology from within the EU to outside. So it's, it's really a, a gap. And so it's a policy priority because it's you know, grounded in this analysis that, that you uh, raised in your question of uh, technologies being developed in the global north and sold elsewhere, but also secondarily because it's clearly something that policymakers are not stepping up to in, in the AI Act. And we, we have a shrinking window of opportunity to, to make it happen, and we are working with our partners in the EU to do so, but that's very important to us at this point in time. I'm very happy. Happy is a 
loose term here, but I'm appreciative that you bring up these points because my last two episodes covered the surveillance state in China and in Palestine. And it's important for our listeners to understand how we help shape this narrative and how this influences the way people think and how it leads them to believe and support things that they may not believe or support otherwise. And so it's very important to understand the role that this technology plays. To take it into a less stressful situation, I'm going to pivot. And from your experience working on tech policy issues affecting entrepreneurs in the U.S., you cover topics including net neutrality, encryption laws, copyright, and content moderation. I'm curious to hear what your conclusions are regarding the issues that need to be addressed in this sphere and how we might go about this implementation. What I would say about my my time working on those issues, which was was a little while ago now, is is two things. One is around this dichotomy or tension that's often raised between innovation and regulation. And I, again, I think for those who are in this space, who keep up with this this space, that won't be new, and it won't be the first time they're hearing that. But it hasn't faded, even in the context of the AI Act, for instance. That's often often the rebuttal we face of, you know, we can't regulate at the expense of innovation. And I think what I really saw during my time doing that work was that, uh, I mean, it's just not the case. I think conceptually and theoretically, I, I felt that and I it's worked with a lot of people who always stress that it, it's, it's not about pitting the two against each other. And we shouldn't in any scenario want innovation that comes deeply at the expense of of any individual or community, uh, no matter who they are. And I I think that's something you said earlier as well in this conversation about innovation. But I I think in that work, because I was communicating a lot and and with not necessarily, you know, small business owners themselves, but business associations or representatives of small business owners. And it was clear that that was not necessarily their concern that concern was we're aware of all these these new technologies but we we want to use them responsibly as well the second thing that really stuck out to me from that time again is not really specific to those issues but was just the value of coalition work and i think if there are listeners who want to enter this space or kind of earlier in their career it's really key to remember that achieving policy change, regulatory change, is a team effort, and it requires the coming together of nonprofits looking at these issues from various angles. You know, we take we come with a human rights approach, but we work closely with organizations who have either a more specific approach on a certain economic and social justice issues or work in different ways. So various nonprofits, but like I said, also community organizers, also journalists. And the media, they play an important role in awareness raising. The policymakers themselves, there is a whole almost ecosystem and range of actors who whose efforts need to come together to see that policy change. And I think, yeah, during that time I, I was in DC and I think seeing kind of how strongly coalitions were coming together on issues such as net neutrality and encryption laws and, and the power that they had together and also the power that they had as 
a group to bring, to also reference our previous point, lived experience to the fore. So for instance, at the time we were working on, on net neutrality, which was going to potentially be repealed in the US. And we worked with a range of other nonprofit organizations to bring folks who would be affected by that, whether that was those with disabilities, those in in schools who relied on good internet access in school, those working with migrants at the border who needed access to internet to be able to file up, you know, the, the various paperwork and applications that they needed to work through. So many different communities, we were able to bring them to DC and we, there was a day on the hill where they were able to speak with policymakers. So I think that's the other thing I would, I would highlight from that time. And with that in mind, I will bring up my next question. And I'm specifically thinking of Hollywood as I ask this and what's going on with the strike and AI in Hollywood and in art and media going forward. My question is that in today's digital age, many people believe that we cannot reclaim our data and that data ownership is a myth. So can you talk about that and the implications of assigning property rights to personal data whether or not it is in the context of art in Hollywood or on a, another basis. Yes, I'm really glad we're we're gonna go in that direction for a little bit because I think in the world of AI, a really a key missing point is around a resource exploitation. And we can come back to what that means, but maybe to start with where you started on an issue of data ownership, which is something I, I worked on also in my pre-amnesty days, the, the top line thing I would say on sort of the implications of monetizing ownership of our data is that it effectively, uh, in my view and, and based on my research, turns something that should be a universal human right into something that can be monetized. And by doing that, you give those uh, with financial privilege, more access to that right than others. And, and when I did that work, it was at a time when it, proposals were increasingly flying around on giving individuals more control of their personal data on internet platforms by offering them financial compensation for the use of their data. So for instance, you're on Instagram and Instagram is harvesting your personal data and using that data, surfacing more tailored ads to you. And somehow you would get money for that. And you would be compensated for that because your, your data is your property. And I think on the surface, this can seem like a wonderful solution to all of our problems. But like I said, where I started was, I, I think my fundamental objection to that is that the right to privacy is not something that should be monetized because that violates the very idea that it's a right universally accessible to all because in that model of of social media companies compensating us for our data like i say we're we're those who would be able to opt out of that would be those who have the financial privilege to do so i will also say that th there are lots of questions around what that financial compensation would look like and many have argued that it doesn't amount to much more than credit card points so we don't even know what the the real impact would be but that that was the fundamental objection with with that piece and my findings. To bring that more into the present, I think fundamentally data-driven technologies, which AI and algorithmic systems are, are based on a type of data extraction and exploitation. And tackling that needs to be a part of our policy 
proposals and how we want to see these technologies regulated. And it's not just the technology itself or at the end point of the technology. I think it's also throughout the supply chain of those technologies. You know, when we talk about how AI systems are being trained, or this really speaks to the the chat GPT piece and the strikes in, in Hollywood that, that you started this question out with, it's the, the extraction of data that is then being used to, to make the existence of, of these tools possible it is is extractive too. So that that's why I say it's sort of not just the technology, but it's also the supply chain. And, and I think as we we are seeing in, in the AI policy world, it's also, it's about data extraction and exploitation. It's also about labor extraction and exploitation, whether that's about how these systems are being trained. So we saw earlier content moderators in Kenya unionize for the first time, content moderators who are working as contractors for, I believe it was TikTok, and to train ChatGPT, unionize and call for better working conditions. And again, that comes back to the earlier point of kind of the, the global power structures between the global north and, and the global majority world that are also being exploited in how these technologies are being developed. So that there's a labor exploitation piece as well. And then there's the environmental exploitation piece, which I'm certainly not the expert to speak to speak on, but there is mounting evidence and has been for a while, though it's only getting more attention recently on the environmental impacts of of building AI systems, whether that's the energy required to run the data centers necessary for these AI systems or otherwise. I don't have them to hand right now, but there are some great statistics uh, or very illustrative statistics on, you know, the amount of water uh, or an estimation of the amount of, of water that went into that is equivalent to the energy that was used to develop a tool like ChatGPT. So, so I think I will run that out there and, and say that there is there is a really important analysis around resource exploitation and extraction that needs to, to be part of how we think about AI. And that takes me perfectly into my next question, because a lot of people are surprised to hear how much water is required to answer a chat GPT question. And so I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the hype around generative AI and chat GPT. And if you think that chat GPT should be trained on people's writing, their books, their poetry, what have you, or if it goes back to those property rights that it should be copyrighted and not allowed. Many thoughts on the hype around generative AI and generally how hype cycles around new forms of technology operate and often serve to distract or dilute. And, you know, last year it was the metaverse and now this year it's generative AI. And while I do think generative AI is a novel functionality in in AI, uh, and definitely worthy of our attention. I think hype cycles can be so damaging. And I, from my perspective, to you know, particularly because of how they also impact how we're thinking about policy and regulation. And I, I think they end up pushing the policy and regulation debates into a kind of myopic space as well, because policymakers often end up being led by that hype cycle. And 
start re- start moving in very reactive ways. And, and that happened this year with generative AI and how policymakers in the EU suddenly realized that they needed to incorporate generative AI somehow into this framework for AI regulation that had been in the works for a while. And all of this is, has really been driven this year by this hype. And of course, more than anyone, I believe that we need urgent action on on regulating AI. And it's good that there is some momentum, but that momentum needs to be directed in the right place. And that right place right now is, is binding regulation at the national or regional level that can in the future influence global level regulation. And that head on looks at the harms and risks of AI that are happening now, have been happening and are documented and are going to happen soon. And if we can get that right, then we set ourselves up well for for regulating future forms of AI as well. And what I think the generative AI hype has done is is caused this huge jump forward to the future forms at the expense of of what we need to be focusing on. Now, I think that's also, I'm, I'm being a bit reductive here and simplistic. I think it's also very complex and there are different schools of thought on AI and where we need to focus on AI. But that's my my quick answer on, on the impact of hype cycles from the perspective of someone who cares about how tech is going to be regulated. So there's so many more questions I do have for you. But to bring our conversation to a close, I have a twofold question again. One, What can we as individuals and our listeners do to be more mindful about the way this technology uses our data, the way it may possibly be primed? What can we do to be more mindful? And off of that, are there any last pieces of information that you think are notable that we should take away from this conversation? On what people can do to be more mindful about how tech is used, how data is used about them and the impacts. Listening to this podcast is a great first step (laughs) just to plug the podcast. I think the second thing I would say is I've talked a lot in the last, uh, in the time that we've had together today about tech at quite a, at a policy level, maybe a more macro level, which fits with the work I do. We have touched on lived experience, but perhaps what I haven't emphasized enough is the the community and local level effects of these technologies. And while I think if you have the time and capacity to engage or, or you know, you, you work in the space and you can engage on tech policy at the more macro level, that's great. But but I think where we can have a lot of impact is at the, the local level. And like I say, you know, gig workers around the world have unionized because they have felt that the platforms they're working on are not being fair to them. I think that's one example of where we've seen more sort of local community level organizing also around sort of the establishment of Amazon warehouses and, and offices. So I think there are some examples of it, but I, I think that there is a lot we can do in our immediate communities with those around us in our immediate kind of locations to understand what impacts tech are happening, whether that's on us or others around us, and also demand change at the local and state level. I think those are those are really important places to push for change. And, and sometimes the easiest place for us to exercise immediate impact, and that often boils up. That also then influences regulation at the national level, at the regional level, at the international governance level. So that is, that's what I would say on being more mindful. 
In terms of takeaways from this conversation, there are two two things I'd like to say. One is to speak to the hype again and to almost make a plea to try and cut through the hype. <laughs> I Like I said, I think it can be really distracting and it can really dilute where the conversation needs to be. And when you see all these headlines about generative AI or ChatGPT or the existential risk that AI poses to society, to, to really question that and to really question who's putting forward that narrative and who benefits by putting that narrative forward. And do you think those voices speak to speak for the most marginalized or those most affected by technology? Do you think they speak to your experiences of how you will be most affected by technology or the communities that you are part of? Uh, and if you, your answer to that is yes, <laughs> then great. But I really feel more often than not, it will be no. And I ask that everyone do that that sort of mental exercise as they see how, how tech is, is covered. And the second thing to go back to something I said right at the beginning of this conversation is to remember that tech does not exist in isolation from the, the realities it, and the context that is, is deployed in and to use the words that you use, that it's not neutral and to see tech as an extension of, of the incentives, ideologies, motivations that that produce its, its development and use in the first place to really take that holistic what is often called the socio-technical view of, of tech well Domini, i so appreciate your sharing your thoughts with us today and thank you for your time thank you for having me thanks for listening to another episode of technically biased the podcast that discusses bias in tech Tune in again for another episode that analyzes how bias is perpetrated through tech, through the context of history, psychology, or language. Thanks and have a great day, everyone.